0: folks, we're back. This is Elias Krim and my pal Pete Davis is with us. Hi everyone. And we have another episode of Dorothy's Place and got a couple thoughts before we start talking to uh, an amazing lady. Um, Rosalie Regal is our guest today and I'll come back to her and her uh, interesting uh, history in just a minute before we start interviewing her. Um Pete and I are going to give you a quick little thought on an organization and a book. And Pete, what is the, um, what's the organization you've been thinking about this week?
1: Yeah, I have a surprise organization. Usually we try to do um, underappreciated organizations that might not be well-known. But this week I'm going to probably do the most well-known organization, um, which is uh, AA uh, and Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs. Um, From a specific angle, though, um, which is that uh, anyone who's interested in the type of things Dorothy's Place readers, uh, listeners, and Solidarity Hall readers are interested in need to care about the art and craft of uh, organization and institution building. And there's this wonderful article in the literature of the arts and crafts of institution building, which is Higher Power, Lessons for Social Change Organizing from the 12-Step Movement by Justin Rubin. And ever since I've read it, I've looked at AA completely differently. Uh, In the article, Justin talks about how the structure of AA shows that deep and simple, an old Mr. Rogers quote, deep and simple is always better than shallow and complex when it comes to organization building. And he points out different Aspects that you might not have noticed about AA that make it work so successfully. One is uh, there's no gurus uh, in AA, so like there's no one that you look to as like the leader who knows everything. Everyone's on the same page. Two is they take the business out of most of the meetings, so. When you go there, like everyone's been to one of these meetings where you spend 45 minutes of the meeting deciding when the next meeting is or going over the budget or doing Robert's Rules of Order. What <laughs> AA does is say, okay, a small group of people will rotate in to do the business stuff. We're going to make the meetings the real like heartfelt uh, meat of it all, of like what you love about being part of AA. Um, three is leaders are constantly rotating and like there's a different leader and the leader is supposed to like be a service leader and not a control leader four is in the group you have the group as a whole but you also have one to one connections through sponsors um and five uh it's super flexible it's like an aa in a box is basically chairs lemonade And, like, the big book that, like, goes through how you do these meetings. And, like, there's a process of what anyone anywhere, whether you're in a church basement in Juneau, Alaska, or you're meeting on, like, in the office of a building before everyone gets there, um, that you know what to do at one of these meetings. Um, And then finally, he talks about how you... The way if you to get something out of AA, you have to give something to AA because built into the structure of your growth through AA is that you are like serving others in AA. And like this, all these elements result in this like being a super successful organization um, that transforms people, brings people together. After people quit, they're still friends with each other. They can go travel across the country, go to one of the meetings, and it'll be like it. And I just feel like anyone who's interested in the type of moral economy building, community building, civics, left uh, Christian stuff that we're into that wants to build organizations, don't go, you know, we can learn a lot from AA. Keep it simple. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Rotate your leaders. um, Have it be something that you can plop in anywhere and be flexible and have a get the boring stuff out of the main meeting and and have it be about connecting with each other and uh, making personal bonds. And um, it just made me look at this a whole whole way differently. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Huh. Huh. There's kind of a whiff of, uh, you know,
0: almost a little bit of a kind of an Occupy anarchistic kind of thing there. You know, it's it's really about the event. It's about the people. uh, And we're pushing the structure
1: back out of the way. Yeah, I love I love that connection. Like Occupy, you I went to <laughs> Occupy Boston and Occupy D.C. and I felt like I got a gist of what was going in each of them mm-hmm. uh, because they had this like simple process that they threw into any park anywhere. And um, we yeah, and AA does that too. I love right, that. Right, right, very cool, very cool. Okay, um, I'm
0: reading a book. I'm I've been reading around in it, and and there's a lot in it and has an odd title, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus by Douglas Rushkoff, who teaches at um, CUNY in New York, CUNY in New York. Um, Rushkoff is a longtime observer of the digital economy. Uh, he is a brilliant guy, and he is a kind of successor, in my mind anyway, to uh, another New York intellectual uh, maybe even at CUNY, I can't remember, and that would be Neil Postman, yeah, who wrote the wonderful book Technopoly. I think he's very much in Neil Postman's vein. Um, Rushkoff is really brilliant, has read a ton of stuff, and is up to something, I think, very um, distinctive. He's talking about, in this book, uh, which begins with an episode out in uh, San Francisco where uh, local residents... Uh, got angry at the way Google and other organizations were gentrifying their neighborhood and began stoning the Google pickup bus in the morning as it would come by and get uh, citizens uh, in San Francisco and then take them over to the Google uh, campus where they could go make outrageous sums of money. What he's getting at in the book, among other things, is something called the growth trap, the way in which the new economy is a kind of a problem with no name, accelerated by tech and the network effect. He calls it the dream of an infinitely expanding economy with lots of paper billionaires. The problem is, as Rushkoff is arguing, and he's borrowing this from lots of other interesting people, this kind of economic growth we're in now actually does not mean more jobs and more prosperity. It is turning out to mean fewer jobs and less prosperity for most people. Um, the reader might immediately think that we are headed toward a kind of class analysis. But it was very interesting that Rushkoff does not do that. Uh, he does not believe this is um, a matter of, of some uh, evil cabal that is taking the, the world down this road. It is a kind of system, it's the operating system, uh, which is the metaphor that he uses for our economic arrangements. And his approach is in many ways, I would say very humanistic. Um, he is not su- pro- uh, su- proposing technical solutions. Uh, he's not purely a materialist. Um, he has, has written a, in a way a very non-political and yet very radical book because of the way he is synthesizing in a very readable way many different strains of kind of new economic thinking. Uh, You'll see names like Piketty and other people in there. Uh, Lots of interesting analysis of Amazon, of Bitcoin, of um, blockchain, uh, all kinds of kind of impenetrable stuff uh, he is able to make uh, really quite clear. Most amazingly, by the time he gets to the end, the solution he comes up with is something really very old and that turns out to be the more or less Catholic notions of distributism. It turns out Douglas Rushkoff has been reading Chesterton, Belloc and all kinds, of uh, E.F. Schumacher, all kinds of other interesting people. And here is a, um, here's a paragraph from the end of the book. We don't need to convert to Catholicism or even approve of Vatican doctrine in order to appreciate the Pope's vision its Pope's uh, plural, vision of a more distributed economy and to see how it can contribute to our own. Besides, it's less their religious faith informing their recommendations than their memory of the wheels of commerce that preceded the engines of the industrial age. They are in many ways medievalists, after all, who can help us retrieve lost economic sensibilities the same way the Amish can remind us how to implement technology in a more considered fashion or an aboriginal farmer can teach us how pre-industrial crop rotation practices preserve soil nutrients. They remember. I just thought that was flabbergasting. This guy is a secular Jewish intellectual who is on the Pope Francis <laughs> bandwagon. Um, and so he's got also all kinds of other wonderful stuff on platform cooperativism, on uh, Michelle Bowen's uh, P2P uh, peer systems and so on. But um, it's a book that uh, uh, opens up a lot of dense stuff in a very readable and
1: persuasive way. Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I love this and I love that you're bringing that as the book of the week because um, we're trying to build up a, uh, a collection a, a collection of, of writers that are in this middle space. That's not, I, maybe I shouldn't call it a middle space, but another space, which is it's not. It's definitely not this neoliberal uh, corporatism, but it's not necessarily this. It's 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 only adjacent to this right. Marxist yeah. materialism, which both, as probably listeners of this know, you know, both are progressive, future oriented, speed up technology, expert led uh, solutions. But this, but. This other type is human based, looking to lessons from the past, looking to putting people first, um, which can learn from both types um, and uh, and and draws on a different history. And, you know, I see that with Rushkoff. I see that with David yep. Bollier and yep. Oström, who does who did Commons work. Um, and I see it with we see it with Dorothy Day, which uh, I think is a we'll hear a bit more about uh, in the coming interview.
0: I think that's right. I mean, I guess part of our mission here is to take advantage of the fact that there is a kind of crisis in the field of economics, whether or not everyone has gotten around to recognizing it, and and a kind of more humanistic uh, tradition-based and justice-founded approach to economics uh, is the order of the day. And it is not uh, sort of a a notion of a handful of professors. Uh, There are models of this kind of thing going on uh, all over the place. Um, and, you know, so now our hope is that can they perhaps can be scaled up or at least distributed, as Rushkoff is uh, suggesting, and uh, to the great
1: uh, betterment of I life. I also think uh, just everyone. on a strategic politics level, your constituency is larger if you use this language, this humanist language. You know, people who might be completely turned off by you know, uh, workers of the world unite to smash the bourgeoisie or something um, might get, you know, aren't you mad that you used to have a personal doctor and now you have to go to some uh, center where some private equity firm rolled up all your doctor's practices <laughs> into one practice and now you got to rate your doctor like an Uber rating? You know, right. it's um, that's something that appeals to a lot of people. Um, and that's a distributist idea that, you know, don't you, aren't you mad that, the local hardware store got replaced by a Target, and aren't you mad that appliances used to be uh, used to last longer, and now they're cheap plastic junk? You know, that's the type of ways Rushkoff talks in, and um, I think I think of a majority of the country uh, uh, is ready to listen if if we can only get the word out to them.
0: Yes, I think so. It's much more of a bridge building approach than it is just the old fashioned uh, kind of class struggle, finger pointing. You know, although we we probably need some improvement in our class awareness, but he's not he's not turning it into something that can be weaponized. Yeah yep, so that's much better. Which is a not a bad lead into to uh, Rosalie Regal, uh, who is an author, um, a lady who's written a number of books, uh, particularly of oral history. I am um, uh, just looking at her book called Voices from the Catholic Worker, which she actually did about twenty years ago and represents a massive amount of interviewing sort of Studs Terkel style of people who have been uh, part of or affiliated with uh, the Catholic Worker. Uh, she's also done some interviews of people who knew uh, Dorothy Day, and she has a book called Dorothy Day, Portraits by Those Who Knew Her. She also is very interested in nonviolence and has a book called uh, Crossing the Line, Nonviolent Resistors Speak Out for Peace. And then more recently, she has a book called Doing Time for Peace, Resistance, Family and Community. So Rosalie Regal uh, usually lives in um, Evanston, Illinois, and uh, now we will uh, bring her in and have a conversation. Here we go. Well, we've been looking through your work, Rosalie, and there's great stuff to talk about. Um, how about if I start start? Well, we've been looking through your work, Rosalie, and there's great stuff to talk about. Um, how about if I start, start with the obvious question that I'm, I'm sure you get asked a lot, which is, I see from your bio, you did in fact meet Dorothy Day at one point, And I thought maybe you just tell us about your, your memories of that and whether there was actually more than one occasion when you uh, met her.
2: Well, sure. I did meet her only once, but, um, changed my life. Um, it took a long time for me to change and I, I wanted to um, highlight that because I think we continue to change throughout our lives and Dorothy would encourage that um, with all the young people that came to her. Um, I met her while I was working in the anti-war movement in Saginaw, Michigan and we had um, a couple short-lived Catholic worker houses in Saginaw in the 60s and I was like extended community Mm -hmm. and she visited us i believe on the way home from the trial of the milwaukee 14. it was a
0: draft
2: but you know she didn't pay any attention to all these kind of wannabe hippies and (laughs) Saginaw. off (laughs) she spent the whole evening um after our little program listening to this young african-american woman talk about the welfare rights league Dorothy for all her life was interested in the small personal ways for people to make it a better world and I just remember her sitting there listening intensely to this young, kind of tiny um, black woman talk about um, how she was working to make better lives for the people on welfare and um, that just stuck with me Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. this idea of of doing things locally according to what the local community needs. And I see that still played out in the Catholic Worker Movement today. It's one of the reasons there's such diversity within the movement.
1: Yeah, yeah. My um, So my, my priest in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, James F. Keenan, said he met uh, Dorothy Day once, and he has a similar story of being surprised by her not paying attention to what everyone thought she would be paying attention to and then doing something else. Um, It was, she was going to go meet with a group and they were obsessed with getting the exact right food for her, like what would be the most ethical food (laughs) that a saint would want. (laughs) Um, And they like lay out this like perfectly vegan, nothing against vegans, but uh, perfectly like vegan uh, meal. And then she whispers in my priest's ear when he was young, can you just get me a ham sandwich and <laughs> sneaks him off to the back kitchen and just like I just want a ham sandwich and um, and he said like you know it was when you meet someone who many people kind of uh, consider uh, should be saint um, that they're they're still human and and um, and they don't want to usually the people that are the most holy don't want to be treated as precious and I'd love to hear your thoughts on yeah. how she was uh, you know wasn't uh, you know precious and just pontificated she
2: certainly certainly was human and i think that's one of the reasons why i'm really um pretty involved in her canonization movement because we need saints that aren't up on a pedestal and um as i think you know she had a great admiration for saints and saints were very important to her but she never wanted to be put up on a pedestal she she was one of the people i mean um she was born middle class. I think, um, frankly, the Catholic Worker Movement still attracts mostly middle class, college-educated people, mm-hmm. and that's something we're really working on, um, becoming more open to people with different experiences. Because Dorothy welcomed everybody, and she was, um, I mean, she's famous for her forgive 70 times 7 business, which is just very difficult for anybody who does um, hospitality work (laughs) to do. (laughs) Um, But she was a really human person herself. Um, She came to God by little and by little, as as she would often say. You know, her conversion wasn't um, dramatic. She wasn't really sure why she became a Catholic. She just knew she had to do it. Um, She was a wild gal when she was younger, Mm -hmm. and she always had... um, a certain affinity, I think, for the excesses of youth, you know particularly during the sixties i mean she get she might get really upset with with them, but she loved the kind of questioning that she saw in young people um, she um I mean, that's why I like the book I wrote about her from from her friends, because it, they tell all the stories about how she tried not to be autocratic, but yet sometimes she would be, um, and how she would lose her temper like we all do. And she was a very human person. She was just concentrated on God and being the best Christian she could be all the time.
0: One of your interviewees um, makes a funny crack saying... Um, she wanted to be an anarchist, but uh, only if she could be the anarch.
2: Yeah, she wanted to be the chief anarchist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. And you know the 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 term anarchism gets tossed around all the time. Her anarchism was, her anarchism was mostly the personalism, mm-hmm. the seeing people as unique individuals. And also the kind of do-it-yourself. Don't wait around for other people to do it. Um, in other words, don't feed the poor. don't just march on city hall asking that they be fed. Mm-hmm. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. Resist war. Don't just write letters to the editor. Put your money where your mouth is. Uh, put your body where your mouth is. And um, I think sometimes people misinterpret this as saying being she was anti-government. Mm -hmm. She was anti-big government. She was very much into distributivism and and Mm -hmm. people doing things in small ways. She got all of this from Peter Morin. But she didn't, um, you know, she might not have paid into Social Security, but it wasn't that she didn't believe in Social Security. She believed the government had a responsibility to all. So I I really resist when people on the right um, use her in in ways to... um, uh, privatize things yeah. because she wasn't into that kind of thing she was very in fact her her one uh, one of the statements you hear all the time she's quoted about this dirty rotten system she actually applied that to the banks not to the government
0: huh interesting yeah, yeah.
2: people tend to kind of forget that part of her sometimes
1: yeah I I'd love to hear about how you came to Dorothy Day. You you wrote in one piece that um, at the Catholic Worker, it was the first time that you felt like your insides and your outsides matched and that it was a similar path of Dorothy Day that in her work, it was the first time her insides and her outsides matched. I'd love to hear what you mean by that um, well, and okay. your story. I, you know,
2: Dorothy came... Um, Dorothy came to Christianity after a really pretty um, bohemian mm-hmm. life as, mm-hmm. as a young woman. Um, I was born a cradle Catholic and um, was really didn't get much of a Catholic education until college, and I went to St. Mary's College, Notre Dame, so I got a really strong kind of adult understanding um, it was pre Vatican II, but it was really very big on the liturgical movement and a lot of things that were later very in, that were at the time hmm. very important to the worker. But I didn't know that. I I missed that. I think you kind of hear about the worker when you need to, hmm. and that's why there's so many um, communities still popping up all over because the Catholic worker is really needed in the world today. But I heard of, I met Dorothy in '68. Um, my lifestyle and my husband were not um, in tune with the Catholic Worker. He was kind of just a Sunday Catholic, and it was years and years before I came to the Worker. And in 19, about 1980, as I was finishing my um, doctorate at University of Michigan, I decided to write my way into the Worker <laughs> to learn about it by doing an oral history. And so I took. It was actually 12 years before it was published. Wrote Voices from the Catholic Worker. A wonderful book, by the way. I really learned about the Catholic Worker. I learned about it from people who were living it, Um, and I was able, because of the time it was done, to interview many of the pioneers, many of the people that have now gone. You know. So, I mean, it took me years. Everybody thinks because I'm 80 that I must have known Dorothy and worked with her, and I know lots of people who did. Hmm. But I never did. I just wrote my way into the worker. And then after I published the book in 92, or 93 actually, um, then I started a Catholic worker of my own. I didn't get it out of my system, so (laughs) we started actually two Catholic workers in Saginaw, Michigan.
0: You know, I want to ask Rosalie about your your idea of creating an oral history. Um our little group, um, Solidarity Hall that that created the podcast, we're very much localists and there's a sense in, in this oral history that you get a real grassroots, on the ground feeling for the way this movement came together. I, I just thought I'd ask one quick question about your thoughts on oral history for which you've won awards and which uh, of which you're a great exponent.
1: Yeah. I, I'll add, I feel like an oral history is the Catholic worker way to study the Catholic worker. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah, it is the
2: Catholic worker way because it's personalist and it's localized. Yeah. And it's also, and I worked tremendously hard on this, um, in unifying, particularly in the first book, but actually in all four books, um, unifying through editing um which not oral, all oral historians do because the the community aspect is very important to the catholic worker and to the peace activists that, that i interviewed for the last two books i mean they're mainly catholic workers and catholic worker extended community but i i think that community action part of it is important and in the oral history of um academic discipline that is also um being stressed more and more so um maybe not in this interview but i'd be really glad to share um the oral history association websites with Hmm. you because it's a wonderfully interdisciplinary um uh, academic discipline i would dare say there are even lawyers
0: (laughs) 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 great that's great very good, very My husband
2: good. was a lawyer and a judge, so I feel like it's uh-huh. can the lawyers any time we want. Right, um, right. I have in <laughs> I have in, the, in our cottage, there's a, a thing from Georgia that says, no lawyers in the land, or something like that. <laughs>
1: there's the famous Shakespeare quote, uh, first kill all the lawyers. Yeah, that yeah. many a T-shirt at law school has,
2: <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. But l- let me I ask a very
2: you another T-shirt. Now you can edit this out for sure. Huh. But my one national peace um, action that I ever went to in New York, I wore a T-shirt that said, um, "Harvard, the Michigan of the East."
1: A great one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And Very you know good. who loved it? The cops. Yeah. It so oh, nice they just love that T-shirt that made a lot of fun of Harvard.
1: Well, let's let's talk a bit about uh, about that. That's a perfect segue, which is you're from the Midwest, um, and I would love you know there uh, you're in a state uh, that has been getting a lot of focus uh, after the 2016 election results. And I'd love to hear about if um, you know the Catholic Worker message, how it's connected to your Midwest roots, and how you, um and and how it plays differently in say New York uh, versus Saginaw, Michigan.
2: Well, one of the things, one of the things I think that makes the Catholic Worker as long lived as it is, without any sort of Overall structure or membership requirements or anything is the fact that most Catholic worker communities I know are rooted in their community and Mm. what the community needs are. Mm. Um, I have seen Catholic worker communities not make it because they're started on too much what the individual workers want to do. You know, they Mm -hmm. have an idea. Mm And they want to do it, and whether or not it fits with their community, they want to do it. And so the combination of looking at the needs of a local community and looking at the needs and the skills of the people that are interested in the Catholic Worker, I -hmm. think it's what makes it go. Because, you know, anybody who comes to the Catholic Worker, they may come because they're hungry for food or healing, or um, uh, a way to get involved politically. But they also come um, because they have a hunger at the heart. And I think we have to remember that the Catholic worker, people who call themselves Catholic workers, come because they have special spiritual and and social needs that need to be met, too. Hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Very good. But,
2: you know, um, we have... uh, I am actually live in Chicago in the winter, so I'm kind of more in tune with the Chicago worker scene now than I am uh, the Michigan scene, although we have Catholic workers um, in Saginaw and Detroit and a woman trying to start one in Grand Rapids. Hmm. Actually I think she's taking too long to start it. She's wanting to know too much before she gets <laughs> going. <laughs> And we have, um, it's in my first book. Dick McSorley was a priest um, at Georgetown and started one of the couple of the D.C. Catholic workers. He said, really, all you have to do is hang up a shingle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but really, what you have to do is have the desire and find a place. I don't know. Yep. We're talking yep. about having a suburban Catholic worker because people in the suburbs need to know um, need to know and need to have a way to be connected
0: that's Uh, very interesting you know rosalie i want to ask you about that we're here in northwest indiana Um, gary is the uh, cathedral town and there's a a special kind of challenge about the city of gary um, in terms of thinking about a conventional sort of older style catholic worker house and that is the city is greatly depopulated, mm-hmm. so if you were thinking of just plopping down a house in a neighborhood of the city of Gary, that would be a real analysis to try to figure out where is there a working neighborhood, rather yeah. than uh, as of course is true in Detroit, also uh, areas where you know you have maybe two or three square blocks with maybe only one or two families. Yeah. So it's, you know, it it makes us think, well, we need to think in terms of another model. Maybe we need to think about an urban farm. Maybe we need Mm -hmm. to think about a day center. You know, there are other ways to do a Catholic worker project besides just setting up a house. You know, what what would your thoughts be on that?
2: Well, I think you're certainly on the right track in this. Um. But when you say the word neighborhood, and I don't really am not that familiar with Gary. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, I think we did have a house in Gary um, once, or maybe 20, 30 years ago. I'm trying to say, and it was a woman named Ruth went down there from St. Francis in um, Chicago. Hmm. Um, Actually, her picture's on the cover of Voices in the Catholic Worker. Hmm. But I haven't heard from her. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard anything about her lately. I don't think she's still there. But that was when there were still, you know, neighborhoods and real poverty pockets in Gary. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that many, of the particularly Western Catholic, Midwest Catholic workers are doing now is working on neighborhood rejuvenation, on yeah. building neighborhood communities. Kalamazoo is a so wonderful, doing wonderful work hmm. in that way. Um, but they don't live in a depopulated area, they live in an area that was exactly. unsurved. Exactly. You know. Yep. Um, and Sue um, Sukasa where I'm involved in Chicago, is um, that area is semi-depopulated. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of vacant you know, lots and everything. And in urban, um, and actually we do, we do have a garden, and we've given land to other people for gardens. You know, the urban farm idea, I think, really is... Um, exciting and in Saginaw we had one Mm and uh, we're able to get land you know from somebody so we didn't have to pay anything for it.
1: Mm -hmm. Sorry go ahead. You you go Elias.
0: I was just going to say in other words we need to keep reinventing the the Catholic worker model.
2: Well I think yeah I think that the traditional model of feeding homeless men works when there are homeless men. Exactly. You know.
0: Yeah, that's the that's it. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you know, one of the interesting things that I found out about this last fall is um so in areas where there is a street population, mm-hmm. um, showers are a huge yeah um need. Um and a lot of a lot of older houses such as the Atlanta open door which just closed unfortunately. But um they <laughs> provide showers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But there's a company in, I think, Southern Illinois, that builds showers that are portable, and Hmm. the San Jose Catholic Worker bought one of these things. They're quite expensive, but they take it out to different parts Hmm. of the street, because they have quite a few street, quite a large street population Mm -hmm. in San Jose, and they take it to different parts of the street, so these men can have showers, men and women. It's a fantastic. Um, you know, a fantastic truck with three showers on it. Huh. You know? So, it. but I don't see that going for Gary because I don't think there's an endless, there's a significant street population. You know.
0: Yeah, I think we're but. still figuring that out. Uh, Gary also has a big movement, not surprisingly, toward urban gardens. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think a possible project might simply involve <clears throat> collaborating with a lot of the good work that's already going on in Mm Gary.
2: Well, the the thing that I like about urban gardens is the possibility of involving people that haven't gardened before. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in other words, it's not just, I mean, it's not making it so it's just not so quite middle class, Yeah. but helping people, helping people in food deserts. And I'm sure there's a lot of food deserts in in Gary. So you're, you know, you're building building community, teaching people skills, getting families involved, you know. Um, sometimes just giving parties um mm-hmm. is a good way to get people to, to know each other. We did a storytelling at at um a couple of weeks ago with the neighborhood, you know. And um, huh. Huh. just just getting people involved. But um I think one of the things that Gary, people will have to think about, it's like, how total do you want to be? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there there are people who do Catholic Worker um, part-time, like me. Yeah. Yeah. At 80, I don't live in a house anymore. But I do think you need some people for whom the Catholic Worker is the center of their life.
0: Well, that, that leads into the question I was going to ask about, you know, the, the idea, someone said to me, you realize that the Catholic ministry, which actually has a falling average age, is Catholic worker people. Because
2: mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. they're getting younger and younger, uh, yeah. which is fascinating. Have you noticed this too?
2: Well, I think young people are searching, yep. you know, um, and that's the time when you do search. But I also think that we need to call middle-class, comfortable families to mm-hmm. look at their own lives. Absolutely. And to sort of crack open the seed of their comfort, yep. basically. Yep. Um, and I, th- I think <laughs> that that's something that, that we need. And I want to say something now that I, I'm not sure that this is the way the group in Gary is focusing, but the Catholic work is really ecumenical now. Mm-hmm. You know? Um I think it's interesting that your bishop is, you know, interested in this, mm-hmm. but I think Catholic workers are stronger when there's kind of a of separation interesting. between yep. Yep. diocese and worker.
0: Yes, um, yes, I get that. I,
2: the woman I started, the Catholic Worker in Saginaw, worked for the diocese, mm-hmm. um, and so we were listed in the diocesan book, but we took not one penny from them, ever.
0: Yep. Yep. You know,
2: um, other than any salary she would donate. It's, and we had a wonderful bishop, we had Kenny Yentner there then, so, you know, we had this absolutely marvelous bishop. He, he said at our house blessing, he said he was always kind of ashamed because he had, had a Catholic worker house in his diocese, so now he, now he did. Uh, oh. uh, ah, yeah. ah, <laughs>
0: It's a delicate relationship, right? yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, but, you... you know, a lot of Catholic workers have been fantastically successful even when they were in a rather um, contentious relationship yeah. with their diocese. I'm thinking of L.A. for first. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They campaigned against the new cathedral because they said that's not where the money needs to
0: go. Ah, I see. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, And Dorothy would often, you know, she would really get um, the I mean, I that, uh, all the churches in cities that are closing their doors and not making their um, property available to serve the poor. You
1: know? mm-hmm.
2: um, I'm thinking particularly of New York. In New York, dioceses are the largest landowners um, in um, hmm. in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and um, to get one of their buildings, you have to pay a fantastic amount of money.
1: Huh. The um,
2: Dorsey would be really inveighing against that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your point about how we need to get people in the suburbs and middle-class folks um, turned on to this uh, is really resonant. You know, one thing that's been, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have an answer to this yet, but one thing that's struck me in the past year has been i'm from a town where everyone in the town has a sign up in their yard that says like hate is not welcomed here resist you know everyone you know votes for the right candidates everyone showed up at the march on washington for um the women's march but we just had someone in our town deported uh by ice Hmm. and no one showed up you know and um and there wasn't an outcry for that. Or, you know, when mass incarceration grew in our in our state, Virginia, which is like the second worst death penalty state and one of the worst, uh, uh, until very recently, mass incarceration states, uh, no one's showing up for that. And how can we that I, I don't want to say call that hypocrisy. I just want to call that untapped uh, morality because people are concerned enough to put these signs up and march and know that something is wrong but it's not translating into um, it hasn't been channeled yet into kind of on the ground service putting uh, putting yourself out there and I feel one of the great things about the Catholic Worker is it turned people who had this latent moral outrage and turned it into practical work and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Well, you know, and that's one of the reasons I wrote my last two books, which are on basically with, it's against uh, it's people who are resisting war and are, were willing to go, are willing to go to prison for it. And I think at, you're putting the finger on the big difference between the Catholic worker and all the other do good people because people, you know, liberals like to support people that are different than they are. But what do you mean by support, <laughs> you know? It means showing up, it means putting your body on the line. If, um, like I have a, an Iraqi student that, that um, I'm supporting, and we have said she has to graduate. She can't hide herself in college forever, and we've told her that she has to graduate. Um, and she's afraid to, because huh. she's afraid she's gonna get pick, picked up.
1: Wow. And we have
2: said, we will not let you get deported. And so what that means, and the three of us made a commitment to her, we will stand with her. They will not arrest her without arresting me. You know, That's the kind of resistance that the Catholic worker encourages. Mm-hmm. You know, not mm-hmm. The movement from protest resist to resistance is to act, and that's what Dorothy and Peter, but mostly Dorothy, really believed in, you put your body on the line, if it means getting arrested, it does. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the big thing. And why people didn't show up when that ice was arrested. The woman was before. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. And I hope, you know, it's gonna take, I think people, I don't think that it's people don't aren't willing to do that. It's that they haven't been channeled yet. And that's why it's so important to have institutions like uh, the Catholic workers sphere. here.
2: A lot of it is fear. I mean, I think yeah. all of us have difficulties moving out of our comfort zone of any of any sort. Mm-hmm. And I think the government with its, you know, shoes off in the airport kind of uh, silly laws <laughs> uh, is um, encouraging fear. Yeah. You know, people are so afraid of the IRS that they won't resist on their, on their income tax. And the thing that you need to fight, I think, and and it takes maybe some, um, you know, real soul-searching and prayerful searching of how do you get rid of that fear of conforming, you know, and go to Walmart, just another thing to risk being arrested. And that's the movement, that kind of solidarity that the Catholic workers have can help move to that, to that level. And I've explored these issues in the, in the last two books on doing time for peace, Resistance, family and community particularly. Hmm. Um, it, it talks about what happens when you resist the state. You, know, you go to jail, and you have to be willing to do that. And As a law student, Peter, you know, you have to be, say, okay, I'm going to be disobeying a law that maybe the law itself, for instance, the law of trespass, most of them aren't bad laws in themselves, but you're willing to just dis- Catholic workers often are willing to disobey that law to stand with people.
1: Amen.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah. Rosalie, you mentioned in your biography that you've had two, as you call them, low-key arrests. So if this isn't a silly question, I thought I would ask you, how many ways are there to be arrested?
2: Oh, there's a million ways. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way that, and I've been rethinking this a lot lately, and it's probably maybe for a different interview, but the um, traditional Catholic worker um, way is to be someplace where you're not supposed to be, to disobey um, a trespass law, which mm-hmm. is sometimes crossing an arbitrary line. Mm-hmm. Um, the the time when I risked the most um, jail time, was uh, at Oford Air Force Base, also, I guess, at Creech Air Force Base, hmm. against the drones, um, where you just cross the line. We crossed the line. We knelt down and said, a Hail Mary and our father, and they asked us to leave, and we said, we're going to pray here, and they arrest us. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's all very, um, almost liturgical, and it's... <laughs> rhythm, <laughs> uh, yeah. and um, very sort of Catholic middle class, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you're kneeling down, so you're not hurt unless, you know, if you go limp, then they pick you up and they might hurt you. I don't go limp at my age, um, <laughs> but it's all very sort of orchestrated, and that's a huge difference than the kind of Ferguson um, yeah. that we've seen in the last couple of years. But Catholic workers are involved in that, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think mostly younger people. um, I think Catholic workers are rethinking, you know, what is nonviolence? Is it always just kneeling down and praying? You know, is that the only way to um, say your no? And so I think people are rethinking that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Very good. And and you know you don't you don't <clears throat> most people anyway don't go from writing letters to the editor to um, getting arrested like in one filth. yeah <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah right community is important right. and nonviolence training is uh-huh. important and there's lots of good people um, all over the United States now who give good nonviolent trainings you know War Resisters League and Eighth Day Center in in um, in Chicago and Michigan Peace Team, or Meta, they're called now in Michigan. A lot of people give good nonviolence training, so you're you're prepared for anything. Yeah. If you go a nonviolence
1: training. I'd, I'd love to ask you about this cause specifically, pacifism, because of all the causes right now uh, on the I'd say on the. The left, egalitarian, progressive side—it's the one I'm most worried about. You know, there's a there's an insurgent uh, lefty economics group. There's an insurgent kind of inclusion and multicultural, uh, almost dominant um, uh, uh, cause. But pacifism has always been, uh, at least in my lifetime. Uh, had second fiddle you know we weren't able to stop the iraq war we have endless war in afghanistan that continues and it seems like the only voices that even broke through were from the right kind of america first trump is the closest we can get before yesterday you know trump on the campaign was the closest we can get to pacifism and there's not a party there's not a single party that has neither of the parties has a they seem to both be on board for an endless war, and I'd love to hear what gives you hope in that and what we should, uh, what groups we should turn to and support and what strategies um, can get to the level of uh, peacemaking that we had in the 60s and 70s.
2: Well, of course, I think globally the Pope is our hope.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, amen.
2: He really um, has come out more strongly than any any Vatican person is even more stronger than John XXIII and, and on the Vatican II documents. And I I have high hopes that he's working on an encyclical that will say that the just war theory doesn't apply, hasn't applied, can't yeah. apply yeah. in modern warfare. Um, He's, I mean, and he didn't do it, and I had not had time to really investigate this, but, you know, I think it was about a month ago now, that letter in the Vatican uh, took the far-right bishops um, in the United States to task for supporting um, the um, warlike position of Mm -hmm. the United States, and, you know, I mean, I think anybody who's thinking can see that that kind of fire and fury, <laughs> threatening, is the big stick that causes so many the wars in the world. Yep. And um, I think the Catholic Worker analysis of this, and particularly in its aims and means, which is just really consistent in um, its you know, looking at the ills of the world and looking at the changes we have to make, nonviolence and the nonviolent solution is one of the changes we have to make. And it looks like it isn't working at all. But if you look at Erica Chenoweth's work, you know, nonviolent revolutions succeed much more often, more than 50 percent more than violent revolutions. And we've got to. My little and by little, as Dorothy would say, work for that. So um, I, I think, think it would be, be wonderful. I think she's very expensive, but if you could get Eric Chenoweth, um on your Solidarity Hall, that would be hmm. wonderful. So,
0: great, great, you know, Rosalie, great stuff. You might be
2: able to get something that, you know, something that she's. For instance, she spoke um, hmm. up at Benedictine University. Heard. Up at the Benedictine University in um, Minnesota, and mm-hmm. you might be able to use that podcast, something like
0: that. I don't know how those things work. Very good, very good, Rosalie. Great. This is this is wonderful. I'm I'm very happy that we connected. Um, thank you for your time. We'll we'll be back to you with some updates on when this all gets out to the world. Um,
2: okay, you cut out my T-shirt business. <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> not necessarily that
0: might be one of our favorite parts um but thank you thank you uh, as I, I, say. I think
2: that brings up something i mean one of the reasons i love to do oral history is that catholic workers have this great sense of humor you know, <laughs> all, these little, you know all these stories about dorothy all of them have this little twist you know sense yeah. of humor also you have to do something on peter morin i mean you, you know good point Good That's point. Dorothy, is But you really need I agree. to look at what he said. And there's a wonderful fellow um, named Lincoln Rice in Milwaukee hmm. who uh, does great work on Peter, knows more about Peter more than anybody.
0: I'm writing this down. Very good. Milwaukee. Super. Yeah.
2: His name is Lincoln Rice. He's at Casa Maria in Milwaukee.
0: Casa Maria. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks much. Pete and I will be in touch, and um, God bless for all the great work you do.
2: Well, this is sure fun. And, you know, when I'm back, I would, I would love to come down and, and, and talk with the Gary folks.
0: You know? Yep, it um, crossed my mind. That uh, would be great. I,
2: just, I think that would be fun. I just love to get, get people excited about doing something. Don't spend forever um, Yeah. talking about it.
0: Well, um, you're, just, you're just up in Evanston, I think, so not too far. Right. Great.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well good, good luck, and thanks thank so much for doing this.
0: Okay. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Okay. Take care, Pete. Bye, man.
1: Bye.